Hello, everyone. Welcome again to your favorite time of the week, O2 and You. I'm your host, David Garbett, coming to you live from South Salt Lake. And I know the question you're asking, is this a standing desk? Yes, it's a standing desk. Today, uh, my guest is Taylor Stevens, state government reporter at the Salt Lake Tribune, coming on to talk to us about uh, the 2021 Utah legislative session that just wrapped up last week. Taylor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. And I'm sorry, but it's O2 and you, so you can't get away without a little bit of background info on you. Tell us about how long have you been with the trip? I've been at the trip for a little more than four years now. I've covered city government, uh, currently covering state government, also covered your mayoral race um, in, what was that, 2019? Uh, so that's, that's how you knew you had the short end of the straw. You had to cover <laughs> me, you had to cover that race. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, I've been, been at the Tribune for a little over four years. This was my fifth legislative session, although my first covering it full time. So it was an interesting session to, uh, to start that journey on, but, um, coming to you from uh, sugar house, my apartment there. So, oh, cool. And did you start at the Trib straight out of, uh, Westminster? Yeah, I did. I actually started at the Tribune as an intern and then okay. um, came on from there. So before I started, before I graduated from college, started at the Tribune. So it's been a, a good journey. I'm Salt Lake native, so I've always uh, wanted to land at the Tribune. Feel really lucky that I have the chance to, to work for the paper I grew up reading. Cool. That's great. Well, thanks for coming on. And I have to say, I know you work incredibly hard. I don't know how you turn out so many stories on such tight timelines. This, you know, maybe this is the story of journalism these days, but you do a great job of it. I was always really impressed with um, the work that you put in on that mayoral campaign, uh, all the issues you had to follow and just watching your reporting generally. So um, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we've got a lot to cover. And uh, so let's try and pack it in. Um, but maybe one of the first places to jump in, you said that this was, you've done a few different sessions. This is the first one that you've covered in full, but also really a different session because COVID hit uh, towards the tail end of the last session. But this time, you know, this was the first session that was fully in the new COVID world. How did that affect things? Yeah, did I it affect things? Yeah, it definitely did. And I remember, you know, the last week of the last session, um, just like you said, starting to kind of have some concerns. And then there were a series of special sessions afterwards to slash the budget that they'd just approved. And, you know, I think that we were, the budget was in a much better position than expected, uh, in part because of some of the CARES Act funding. And so this was a session where there was a lot of money to invest. And so that was uh, unusual because there were a lot of demands for uh, that one-time funding, um, but also just in the day-to-day -day of the, uh, the session was unusual. It started out um, after the protests at the Capitol, both in DC and locally 
they closed mm. the Capitol for the first week to the public. So that was a little unusual. They opened it back up, but there was very limited uh, in-person public access. You know, normally the Capitol is full of school groups and lobbyists and different, you know, political interests, and they always have uh, protests or events of some kind. And we didn't really see that up there, which was unusual. Um, one thing I will say is I was a little, um, I was a little unsure of how the public comment via Zoom was going to go because we saw in the first few special sessions that a lot of people weren't really taking advantage of that and there did seem to be a lot less public engagement and so um, I was a little you know, cautious to see how that was going to go, but there actually was quite a bit of engagement up there via Zoom. It's hard to say what it would have been without, you know, the pandemic, but it did seem like they were able to their credit to figure out that system and also to keep the COVID um, cases under control. You know, I kind of being a skeptic thought everybody's going to have COVID and we're going to shut this down in three weeks. And I was wrong about that. There were very few cases and that's kind of a testament to the rapid and frequent testing that they did up there. So yeah, very strange session, different than what we've seen in the past in a lot of ways. Yeah. How do you, maybe let me ask you a little bit more about that because in sessions in the past, you know, often the most effective way, because legislators have so many bills that they're running through and time is so condensed, seems like the most effective way to actually get the point across to a legislator or have a conversation is either to grab them as they're walking from a hearing to the floor or when they're on the floor, send in a little note to get their attention. We didn't have that in the same way. How did that I mean, what what were you observing? How were people actually persuading legislators of their position on bills or how were they persuading them to reconsider? Was there any of that? Yeah, I think a lot of that was happening from what I heard um, more behind the scenes this year. So for example, I know that uh, lawmakers said that they were meeting with lobbyists, but they were doing that in kind of more one-on-one -on -one, um, settings or via phone or text. And so it did kind of disrupt the normal ways that people were uh, engaging and interacting. I'll say as a reporter, you know, these lawmakers are getting so many requests, so many emails and texts from constituents and lobbyists and special interest groups, and it's really hard to break through. And so we really rely on catching people on the floor, um, and we weren't able to do that this year. And so that was really tough, I think, for bringing some of those perspectives to our readers, because we really had to rely on getting a call back. And, you know, there were some lawmakers that I dogged for days and, you know, calling, texting, trying to get in touch with them and just never heard back. And so uh, that was really tough from kind of a, a journalist perspective. And I imagine for the public, that was difficult as well to have access. But um, in another way, I think that the pandemic has opened up some doors that, you know, previously were closed. For example, for people in rural areas or people in southern Utah who maybe don't really have the access or time to drive up to Salt Lake to meet with a lawmaker or speak during public comment, they were able to do that virtually. And that's something a lot of lawmakers have um, said that they want to keep going after this session, even when, you know, we all can be more safely in a room together, they see that as a benefit. Um, and I, I think that we saw that play out with people from all over the state able to engage more rather than just in the central Wasatch Front area. 
legislators don't always want to answer your questions or return your call. So that was one of the shockers that I heard. It is, it is shocking, but I think <laughs> that's the case, unfortunately. Um, I guess the last thing on this, I hadn't realized until you were saying this, but maybe this session removed the most effective lobbying technique that I know of, uh, the busload of school children up at the legislature, which I guess means that all of the state symbols uh, remain intact for this session you know, at least. Against the odds, we did add a few more state symbols. I think that we added um, a state gem and <laughs> I admit I haven't been following that bill incredibly closely, so I could be wrong on the status of that, but I believe there was already a state rock and now we have a state gem or maybe, you know, the other way around. So against the odds, we were able to secure a few new state symbols. And I'm out. I'm out. I wasn't paying attention to my state symbol changes. And this is how it happens. It sneaks up on you and you still think it's the topaz and now it's something else. So I know it's, it's a mess out there. Taylor, let's talk a little bit about, um, I want, I'm interested in how you think uh, our new governor, Governor Cox, is doing with the legislature. You know, we've had a few different models um, for governor legislative relationships. I would say for the past two governors, at least the model was a bit more hands-off legislature just kind of ran the show you know mike levitt was probably a bit more involved in going back we had governors who were more willing to come in and and actually try and push an agenda and work with legislators what's your take from this session with uh spencer cox yeah i think that they're still establishing that relationship right um cox has only been on the job for a couple months but what we did see during the session is i think he is a much more hands-on governor um you know one thing he said that i thought was really interesting i think it was in his opening night speech the first night of the session was that he plans on vetoing more bills than his predecessor mm. and he just sees that as part of the process he told lawmakers you know don't take it personally i won't take it personally if you override a veto if you have the votes to do that this is all part of the process but you know he has indicated he's going to be a little bit more hands-on in making sure that bills he doesn't agree with or doesn't think uh, are fully baked will actually be signed into law and so we haven't seen any vetoes come through yet. I was asking him, you know, when we might expect to see some of that. And he's been pretty tight-lipped on which particular measures he's going to, you know, pull out the veto pen for. But he thinks that we'll probably start seeing that in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, he indicated a few bills that he's uh, maybe unhappy with or thinks there should be a special session on. And, you know, it kind of remains to be seen what will actually be done with those. But what he said, and I thought this was interesting as well, as far as his process is going to be for deciding whether to veto something. He says that he's going to bring the stakeholders into a room and, you know, whether that's a physical room or a virtual room during COVID, who knows, but, uh, and sort of, you know, have them convince him, you know, the lawmaker who ran the bill convinced me I should sign it, the people who are opposed to the bill convinced me I shouldn't, and that he'll give everybody kind of their fair shake before he, uh, before he does veto a bill. So I thought that was kind of an interesting insight into how he plans to sort of approach the legislation side of things. But definitely we've seen him take on a uh, more hands-on role, I would say, in the first few months of his administration. 
any bills that you think are top targets for his veto? You know, I asked, we asked him that and tried to get some answers the last night of the session. And he said that several bills he was opposed to weren't making it to his desk. And so he wouldn't have to do that. One of those mm. being the uh, transgender bill that he, you know, made national headlines for speaking against um, and, you know, urging that people who haven't spent time with transgender youth kind of pump the brakes on that issue. So that bill didn't end up making it through the process. Um, he said he didn't, he wasn't very happy with the bail reform proposal as it passed through. And he indicated that could be a candidate for a special session. So whether that's a special session and a veto or just a special session to address some of the problems with that bill, I'm not sure. But those were two that he mentioned. Um, the pandemic endgame bill, which is going to uh, end the mask mandate April 10th. He worked with legislative leaders on that one and said he intends to sign it. So, you know, there were a couple bills that through the process he um, either came to an agreement with or the bill died. And so it will be interesting to see kind of what proposals now moving into his office will get that veto. Any news, so aside from the governor, and, and some of these COVID issues, anything you thought was remarkable or, or really different about this session? Any new trends? Well, we, we adjourned before midnight. <laughs> last night, and that was a, a little unusual, I think. Um, but I guess one other thing I would say that I heard about this session was with all of the events and the engagements canceled, some lawmakers indicated that they felt they had more time to read the bills. They had more time to really engage and get into the issues. And so, you know, the governor was saying, obviously we wanna have some events, but maybe we should take that as a cue in, in future sessions that we're able to really dig into the policy during these 45 days. And they passed so many bills um, during these few weeks. And so that could be a benefit. And so I think we saw some of that, that uh, lawmakers did seem to be a little bit more engaged perhaps and have more time to have that engagement because of the pandemic. So that was kind of an, another interesting byproduct mm. of COVID-19. And, and on that front, I want to talk a little bit about how, you know, your quick take on the process, how <laughs> bills typically work in the legislature, because, uh, you know, I think there's the, the ideal that we have kind of like the debating society, you put forth a policy, it's thoroughly discussed. And I mean, this just doesn't happen. Legislators have so much on their plates some of their bills run the gamut from uh, you know, minor tweaks to address uh, some small typographical error to really consequential bills that affect uh, so many people's lives or budget. How do things actually work? How do you see bills get put together? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I guess just to start, one thing I will say is if a bill is debated, um, you know, the, I feel like the, the legislators don't really like to vote down bills, which I think is interesting. So sometimes if there's a controversial bill or something that leadership, legislative leadership just isn't interested in, it will never make it to a committee hearing and it will never make it to the floor. And so there are exceptions to that. Um, you know, I think we all knew that the bill that sought to increase the minimum wage in Utah to $15 an hour 
was kind of dead on arrival and that one did get a committee hearing just to have that conversation. And so uh, it's not in all cases, but often we'll see some of those controversial bills don't even get a committee hearing. You know, this year there were, I think, two abortion bills that never made it into committee. And so I think that's something that's interesting for people to know um, that not every bill gets its, you know, moment in the sun to- Who makes those? Yeah, sorry, Taylor, who makes those decisions about whether a bill gets a committee hearing? That's in the Senate Rules Committee and the House Rules Committee. And so sometimes you'll hear someone say it's stuck in rules. And that's kind of uh, regarded as a holding cell for bills that leadership's just not interested in pushing forward. And so I think that's something a lot of people don't really understand about the process. Another thing that is interesting, you know, when a bill does uh, get voted down, oftentimes it's just held you know, either people don't want to actually give it a no vote or maybe a lawmaker, um, you know, wants to save face and doesn't want their bill to just unanimously die. But oftentimes, like the, for example, the transgender bill, which received a lot of, uh, a lot of opposition in committee, lawmakers actually held that bill. They didn't actually vote against it. And so that's kind of another interesting product. Um, the other thing I'll say, you know, is in the final days, things really start to heat up and there's, you know, so many bills. I think that there were at least a hundred of the 500 bills, I think, passed on the final day, if I'm, uh, if I'm remembering that accurately, that, um, you know, and sometimes those are, you know, tiny consensus things and that's why a bill hasn't passed all the way through by the last day, but you do see that those final hours of the session are just, you know, breakneck passing bills incredibly quickly. And, um, you know, sometimes it feels like there could be a little bit more uh, process in the earlier weeks of the session, which is kind of slow and kind of sleepy sometimes to give those proper debate. And so as far as process goes, that's one uh, critique that some people have of the session. Um, and I think the, the last thing I'll say maybe from a process perspective is that, you know, not all of the bills that pass through pass in the form that they received a committee hearing on. And so bills can go through uh, very significant changes and sometimes the public doesn't get to weigh in on the new form of the bill in any kind of public venue. Of course, people do reach out to lawmakers. Mm -hmm. um, privately, but we don't really get to see that public engagement sometimes on a bill that started off as one thing and ended up being something completely different between the floor debates. And so that's kind of an interesting um, process that we see. I, it, interesting, just want to comment on this, because it seems like a theme both with how legislators view each other and decisions to vote on bills, as well as certainly what we saw from G Governor Herbert and now Spencer Cox trying to change this a vote on a bill isn't just a vote, a veto isn't just a veto. Maybe it's seen more as kind of a comment and commentary on that individual legislator or is seen as, as some sort of rebuke. Is that what I'm hearing from you in terms of the way the legislature sometimes treats these things? 
I think lawmakers would disagree with that. And I think that they would say that they vote based on the merits of a bill. But as far as the decision of not, you know, voting someone's bill down and tabling it, you're still deciding not to move that forward. But maybe it's less embarrassing for the lawmaker who did bring it forward if that bill, you don't have to say, died on a six to zero vote, rather it was held or tabled. Um, so I think there are certainly dynamics at play as far as egos go. But I do think lawmakers would say that they make the decisions that they make based on the merits of the policy and not based on the relationships, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense. I know that they would say that, but that some of this behavior does seem to indicate there's a bit more going on. Can we talk about three uh, specific pieces of legislation from this session that uh, here at O2 Utah, we we're either encouraging or you know, we identified as some of them as problematic pieces. And uh, the first one I wanna talk about was a bill introduced that was uh, where the intent was to raise the fees on uh, electric vehicles, uh, alternative fuel vehicles, hybrid vehicles, so that they would pay more uh, of a fee. Basically, and again, not to go too much in the details because we tried to talk to our, our members about this. The whole idea was that um, if you own an electric vehicle, your rates would be significantly increased. Uh, in fact, under the bill, Utahns would, if it had passed, Utahns would have, uh, with electric vehicles, would pay the highest registration fees on an annual basis of any state in in U.S. Um, I mean, to me, this seemed harebrained, given that we have some of the worst air quality in the state, or sorry, in the United States, and. Uh, we know that transportation is probably the key sector to change and electric vehicles can be a huge part of the solution there. What was driving this and why did it fail? Yeah, so this really gets into a conversation about how road maintenance is funded, which is through the gas tax. And so obviously if you have an electric car, you are largely escaping or completely escaping that, um, that gas tax that funds road maintenance. And so there is a movement among some lawmakers who want to right size this. They want to address this issue and sort of feel like everyone needs to pay, as they would call it, their fair share. And so I think that's kind of where we saw this proposal come through and what that proposal was rooted in. Um, however, you know, opponents of this measure, as you mentioned, said this just wasn't a good move in a state that does have poor air quality. And they also said, you know, there's not enough electric vehicles for this to really make a difference to tax these electric vehicles. But on the other token, doing this, they feared could uh, disincentivize people from moving to electric vehicles. So this ultimately it did make it through committee and uh, died in the House on the House floor, um, even after there were a few amendments that were made to try and make it more palatable to House members uh, did not end up making its way all the way through the session. There were a few real head scratchers for me on this one, and one was how the voting turned out, because you had Democrats teaming up largely with rural Republicans to vote against this, and you had some members of the Clean Air Caucus voting for it. Um, could you make heads or tails of that, no, that voting I, sheet? I don't have really any answers for like what the behind the scenes conversations were. All we really know is 
you know, the reasons that each lawmaker gave for whether they were supporting or voting down the bill. But yeah, I'm not really sure how to make sense of that either. Like you said, some interesting votes on that one. We know that the Utah Taxpayers Association was a big advocate for this. Part of it, I can't help but wonder if this bill wasn't a bit of an effort to, to push a policy idea, which is a use charge for vehicles, but to target specifically a, a realm where they thought, one, this is probably not a powerful constituency, and two, it's a small group where we could have this argument that you know electric vehicles aren't paying their fair share and use this to develop a use charge program that then could be expanded for everyone in the state. Um, am I way off base or is this, was that part of the, the thinking for this legislation? I certainly think people run bills sometimes that they know won't pass just to have the conversation and get that, the dialogue happening. So I don't know that that was or wasn't happening here. But, you know, you see that all the time where someone knows their bill, and, and often this happens with the Democrats, they know that a bill isn't going to pass, isn't going to hold water, but they want to have the conversation, start having the policy discussion, and then maybe in future sessions, a solution will kind of come out of those. But if you never start the conversations, they feel, you know, that will never really get the ball rolling. So that certainly could have been at play here. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. The other bill I wanted to talk about, uh, another positive defeat, was the effort by Senator McKay to end Count My Vote. And this is, you know, I think it's one of those things probably that most people hear, and I, I, I admit myself as a latecomer to understanding the importance that this has to the whole way that politics plays out in our state. Um, Count My Vote was a was an effort to expand the means by which candidates could get on a primary ballot. Because before that, Utah was the only state in the US where candidates could only be selected at convention. One thing we know about convention delegates is through polling that they have different priorities, different views than um, uh, most Republicans in the state. Uh, not only do we know that from polling, but we actually get kind of a real-time experiment because you'll have conventions where uh, delegates will vote on who they think the Republican nominee should be for a seat, and uh, primary voters will also vote just a few months later. And, uh, you know, I point to, for example, Mitt Romney in 2018. When he ran, he lost convention to Mike Kennedy. And then in the primary, uh, when he was running for US Senate, now this is in front of Republican voters, got over 71% of the vote. So two very different outcomes. Count my vote allowed candidates a path to get directly on that primary. And so given that there are such different outcomes, I think the real fight here is about what kind of candidates are we getting? And that's why this is always under threat. So sorry about the long-winded um, explanation, but I've never seen a session where that had come so close to, you know, we know that many legislators are not happy with it and have never liked this, but I mean, it felt like we were this close to actually seeing that fall apart. Um, uh, why, why is that? Why, why did it get so far this year? Well, I think like you said, I mean, there, this is a perennial battle 
that we see um, in the years since SB 54 passed through the legislature. You know, this went to court. The Supreme Court found that it was constitutional. So this has been a long-standing battle, and I think you have kind of this uh, push and pull between two wings of the party. Um, you know, the more kind of conservative subset, which is what we typically see come out of the convention process and why the party does want to preserve that convention model because it gives them more control and power over which candidates end up making it through the system. And then you do have, you know, a more uh, moderate subset of the party who have gathered signatures and have benefited from that um, themselves. And so I was surprised to see this pass through because it is just such a contentious perennial debate. Like you said, we haven't seen it get this far. Um, we had some reporting today, I guess the governor met with some of the players uh, on the Saturday before the session ended and kind of tried to get to a compromise on this. You know, the bill did not pass this year, but it's not like this is the last time we're going to see this fight play out. And so it'll just be kind of that continuation of that push and pull between these different factions of the party and, you know, what ultimately is good for the party, what's good for the candidates. And um, it'll be an interesting debate to see how that continues to play out because it won't play out in the courts anymore. You know, that's kind of been decided. And so now the next step, if they do want changes, is that has to go through the legislative process. That's kind of where we're at right now. Do you think there are any ramifications from how far along that that legislation got this year for either the governor or for some of the key senators behind it or key opposition? As far as like electoral consequences, you mean? Probably not. I mean, I feel like uh, this isn't something that uh, yeah. voters in general are paying as much attention as delegates. I mean, I'm sure that there's every Republican delegate that would love to to punish any Republican who supports this, but um, you see internally, did this fight cause any trouble for Dan McKay? Did this fight cause any trouble for the governor? It's hard to say. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I don't know because obviously this is a, a really important bill, an important effort, but it didn't really go anywhere. And so even if something makes it as far as this did, at the end of the day, it's still dead. And so um, I think that people's attention might be on other matters, especially in such a strange legislative session. Um, so I don't know, I, that'll be interesting to see whether, you know, there are any of those consequences. I mean, one thing I will say is, you know, Spencer Cox, he went both the signature route and the convention route and Greg Hughes went only the convention route and he really thought that that was going to pay off for him that delegates were going to reward him uh, for you know staying pure and only going that convention route and Spencer Cox still made it out of the uh, convention with you know the majority support and so I wonder obviously this is a big issue for party insiders and people who are really involved but I wonder if over time people will come to see this system as uh, benefit for candidates and if it will maybe hold a little bit less weight as far as party purity. I'm not sure if that's what we saw from Governor Cox and the vote there, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that, I suppose. Um, the other side of me knows that this is going to be a fight for a long time and that they're not going to give that up easily. I'm smiling because I hope you're right, Taylor, but I'm <laughs> not quite as optimistic as you. 
<laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't say I'm. Uh, I'm optimistic on any fronts, but you know, we'll see what happens with that, and, and whether that um, was a bellwether of things to come, or just you know, one of those things with the candidates and who they were. But uh, that's that's maybe a little bit uh, of analysis on where we might be headed, I guess. Last piece of legislation uh, was something that we had worked on with Senator Colomore, an effort to try and. Uh, revive, save the rooftop solar uh, industry and laws here in the state that actually make it um, make rooftop solar pan out for uh, citizens of the state. There was a decision in October from the Public Service Commission, this entity that regulates uh, essentially what the rules around rooftop solar and whether or not uh, customers who put rooftop solar on the roof can get a rate of return that makes financial sense. And their decision will probably effectively kill that industry. So we had worked with uh, Senator Colomore to try and introduce a bill. He did, came up uh, basically the last week of the session. So um, didn't get a hearing, didn't obviously didn't pass. Maybe what would be helpful to know from you is when legislation is in that sort of a, that sort of a bucket, like something, you know, a legislative response to a relatively recent current event that doesn't get to, you know, a legislator hasn't been able to work it through the process for the months leading up to the session or the beginning of the session. Is that the end of the road? Are these things done? Uh, are there any ways that bills like this can continue on? Have you seen that in the past? Yeah, this bill, um, kind of just an interesting note, it did get on a committee agenda. And in the committee, they said, oh, our bad. We didn't mean to put this on, table it. Um, so I just thought that was kind of interesting example of, you know, a bill that, that doesn't want to be heard, that leadership doesn't want to be heard, um, even going so far as being on an agenda and being pulled. But yeah, what we see a lot is bills that come up in the last week, the last few days, they either skyrocket to the top and they're through, they're passed in a few days, or they end up dying um, because they haven't had enough time or process. And so lawmakers do have, and, and you mentioned this is kind of a relatively recent issue and a response to a recent issue, but lawmakers do have the opportunity to prioritize their bills. So say, you know, these are my priority bills. These are the ones I absolutely really wanna be heard. And so there is some weight put into that when deciding what is going to be heard um, in committee hearings, on the floor, et cetera. But also there is a component of does leadership want it? Does leadership support it? Because they have a lot of- That priority ranking, Taylor, just to clarify, is yeah. something that legislators say basically before the session starts. Yes, typically. Right, um, if I understand correctly, this is- yeah, they may have a few days into the session. I'm not sure exactly what their deadline is, but it's you know a process that takes place either before or in the first few days. Um, but you know if you have support for something from leadership and they really want it to be heard, then you can get that bill, like I said, to skyrocket up to the top. But for a bill like this one, you know, it didn't get it today, but um, probably will be heard during interim, you know, uh, times when lawmakers have a little bit more time to study complicated issues to 
talk through bills. And oftentimes those bills do get passed very quickly uh, in the subsequent legislative session because they've already kind of worked through those issues and gotten consensus. So certainly not the end of the road for a bill like that. Um, and we'll kind of see where those conversations go as far as is it heard an interim or does it wait to get its day until the next session? Um, you know, we can't really say at this point. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I guess maybe the, the last question follow up. This is the first session now with the legislature's new authority to call itself into special sessions. Do you expect them to use that in the coming year and why? We did see them use that quite a bit. Um, I've lost track of how many special sessions we've had and some of them were back to back, but they have used that authority already. And um, oh, okay. yeah, so bad. Mm -hmm. no, that's, it's hard to keep track of. I think that the governor called one last summer mm, and they okay. called the others and they were kind of back to back um, in one case. But yes, we have seen them use that authority and you know, I think that uh, they did a lot of special sessions because of COVID and the COVID response. And now I think a lot of lawmakers feel like we're kind of on the tail end of dealing with that, that a lot of the policy passed either in this session or in the, um, you know, in the summer special sessions. And so I don't think we'll see as many special sessions as we saw last year. I could be wrong. There could be an issue that, you know, just pops up and, um, I am willing to be surprised after 2020 of like what could be next for us, but mm -hmm. um, they usually do have a special session or two in the last few years. And like I mentioned earlier, the bail reform bill, the governor has said is a candidate for that. Although it sounds like that would be a special session he would call. So, you know, we may not be done with lawmaking for the year as much as some people I'm sure would like us to be. Do you, you know, one other specialist session I'm expecting is related to redistricting with these special sessions. Um, how do legislators, I mean, frequently they become vehicles to add on a few other pieces of legislation. Can you give us an idea how that works? Do you expect that with any of the special sessions that come into play kind of tack on bills? Yeah, it definitely could. And we saw this in one of the special sessions, as I mentioned, there were several last summer, but one of them, you know, the primary goal was addressing COVID impacts, but we did see a bill that was added on. And this was kind of after the summer of police protests and um, concerns about police brutality and lawmakers approved a bill that would end the neon neck chokeholds that would ban those in mm. the state. And obviously that's not a coronavirus impact, but it was something that they felt needed to be done quickly. They also had a bill in one of the special sessions that was related to municipal annexations that I, you know, had been sort of messed up in a couple of previous uh, iterations. And so that's certainly something that we could see happen again. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, when the governor calls them into session, though, you know, he is able to say, here are the, the things that I want you to work on. These are the parameters. And so when the legislature calls it itself into special session, you know, whatever they want um, and whatever leadership decides that they want to be heard can go. And so I think that um, in either case, it just depends on the priorities of either the governor or the House Speaker and uh, Senate President as far as what we'll see there. Gotcha. Any last word, any last thoughts or uh, conclusion on, on the legislative session? 
Um, I think it'll be interesting, like we talked about, to see what the governor ends up vetoing and also to see how some of these efforts roll out. Um, you know, one thing that we'll be watching is with that pandemic endgame bill I mentioned earlier, the mask yeah. mandate ending April 10th. So we're kind of, it feels like the end of something when the legislature runs, but it's really the beginning of a bunch of new proposals taking effect and um, a bunch of new policy cropping up. And so we are planning on watching all of that and seeing how that shakes out as well as seeing what doesn't end up making it through based on the governor's veto so there's a, a lot more i think after the legislative session we all just are like okay it's done but it's kind of just the beginning of all of this <laughs> i don't know if that's a good thing or a scary thing but uh, maybe we'll have to leave it up in the air Taylor, thank you so much for coming on, giving us your time, your expertise, your perspective from the Capitol. I sincerely appreciate it. And for all of those who have been listening again, thank you. I'm your host, David Garbeth, the Executive Director of O2 Utah. If you wanna learn a little bit more about us, our website is o2utah.org. We're also on the socials. Uh, until next time, thank you everyone. Thank you, Taylor, and uh, 